Well, hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Class Unity Transmissions. I'm delighted to welcome to the show today James A. Smith, host of the popular show and author of books such as Other People's Politics, Populism to Corbynism, and Work Want Work, Labor and Desire at the End of Capitalism. James, thanks for joining us today. Absolute pleasure to be with you, Nicholas. Thanks for the invitation. My great pleasure to have you with us. Um, let's just start today, James. You know, uh, this will primarily be an American audience, and uh, they may not uh, be super familiar with uh, some of your work, uh, which I think often has a more UK focus. Uh, your recent piece on Jacobin, we'll talk about that uh, during our conversation today, has a UK focus. But um, just for those who may not be familiar, um can you tell us a little bit about the popular show it, it's it's relatively recent i think correct me if i'm wrong on that what, what is the show what is your audience here what made you want to do a podcast on populism well it began um at the the very start of the the um the, the kind of period of the Biden pres presidency, uh, it, it came out of a, a live stream uh done on the 2020 election night actually uh david slavik who who formerly worked with michael brooks uh and with other right. um american indie left um media uh came over to to work with me um and the popular show has sort of been chronicling the afterlife of the populism of the long 2016 as i call it uh on both the left and right in that sort of post 2020 period what happened to um trumpism what happened to the bernie movement what happened to corbynism um etc after covid during ukraine and into the present crisis in gaza uh we've tried to um kind of go a bit further than most left platforms do in speaking to people on the right not in some sort of liberal spirit of getting all views, but rather because it's been my conviction that quite a lot of what has been used to delegitimize, deplatform, and exclude parts of the right from normal political processes has also been used against the left. And very often we've made an error, a tactical error on both sides in being happy when we see it done to them and unhappy when we see it done to us. So try to right. be a sort of forum for reaching out in that respect. And the other um, sort of element of it is that uh, I, I've, uh, as much as I obviously have many very fundamental disagreements with the right, I, I've also found myself in a position of disagreement with much of the left on many things, but as maybe most especially COVID uh, and uh, to some extent Ukraine. So it's also been, uh, it's been a podcast that's, I don't know, I, I think a lot of the platforms that launched during the Bernie era, during the Corbyn era, they've had a, a sort of a, a big push of positivity. And, and a lot of us got behind those platforms because it was almost a sort of a way of participating in those movements. This has been a podcast of a period of defeat. I've referred to it as a podcast of a, a period of elite restoration. Um, so it's a little bit less libidinal than um, its kind of predecessors in that um, sort of hot left populist period immediately before. Um, 
But, you know, if you want to actually think seriously and you actually want to hear different views and try to get ahead of the narrative a little bit, as opposed to just reacting, 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 emoting, emoting, emoting. And if you think that the left should not take up positions that are identical to the average Pintonite think tank, then we're the podcast for you. Hell yeah. I love it. Nicely said. Um, well, uh, you know, obviously there's an, a lot of overlap uh, with the themes you're discussing and uh, and and themes that uh, listeners to this show will 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 be um, used to hearing mentioned and discussed. Uh, I wanted to take an opportunity to ask you about a recent high profile guest you've had on your show, uh, Matt Taibbi. Um, the broadly, I think the topic we can say was you know political freedom as a left project in the wake of the release of the Twitter files, which of course Matt Taibbi was was central to. He is a very high profile figure, also a very I would think you'd agree a controversial figure, certainly for a lot of leftists lately. Um, a lot of leftists would have maybe identified him with him strongly, even 10, 15 years ago. Uh, but you know people like him and Glenn Greenwald have of course obviously kind of their star has fallen somewhat uh, as they've begun to be associated with um, a defense of certain right-wing priorities at the moment. But of course, I think as you'll argue, those priorities are currently merely coded right uh, by certain uh, uh, high-profile figures within the left. And, and that may be a mistake. You opened your interview with Taibi with a question about, and I'm quoting here, the revenge against both left and right populism. And I think yeah. that that framing is kind of a distillation of of your uh, of the axe you're grinding here with your whole project. So maybe just pass the mic to you on this. Why do you think Taibi's research is important for the left and for this project in particular? Well, uh, I mean, Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi, yeah, they're related mm. figures, people who may, like maybe had a position in the sort of the more renegade end of the mainstream media. And then with the opportunities of, of platform broadcasting mm. have, have gone solo. And then during the Trump period, they found themselves primarily at odds with the American centrists, with the, the the Clintonites, with the mainstream of the Democratic Party. And, well, the radical left is supposed to be at odds with them as well. We're supposed to hate them as well. Um, and in 2016, people around Bernie were pretty good at hating Hillary Clinton quite as much as the right does, and, and they were correct to do so. Um, I think that probably the, the the trauma of Trump's victory, a bit like the trauma of Brexit's victory just before in Britain, maybe shook quite a lot of people on the radical left and made them a little bit queasy about continuing that enthusiasm for rinsing uh, and exposing the hypocrisies of the bankrupt, demonic centre. Uh, and so when Glenn and Matt continued hammering um, on them, um, especially with the showing up the Russiagate narrative, the claim that Trump had colluded with Russia in order to win the election and he was some kind of Manchurian candidate, that's an obscene... Putin's puppet. Lie. Exactly the same kind of lie that, that, that was told about 
Corbin, the two were, were a mirror image as far as I, I'm concerned, and and, and I, I always argued that um, the, the 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 campaigns of delegitimation, um, whatever, however much justified criticism there might be of both Corbyn and Trump, the, the, that was not commensurate with the 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 um the strategy that was used against them so Taibbi and greenwald were both focused on that um and then they were also focused on um the way that um sort of th this huge industry for combating misinformation okay you know used against um uh, trump and and the brexiteers then got converted into a machinery and industry against COVID misinformation, they followed the story. Uh, they said, okay, the very same people, the very same strategies are being used to suppress dissent and questioning on COVID. And I mean, you could argue that they sort of went on about those issues at the expense of other things that also matter. Maybe you could argue that. Um, but okay, that is part of the economy of um, this new kind of independent media. If you don't want to be held to the constraints of the um of the M5M then you're going to be to some extent held to the constraints of your own YouTube or Rumble or whatever social media audience it is it comes with the territory that doesn't mean they're wrong uh and in fact they're not they're not wrong um and if you know uh if if it's it's certainly the case that either Glenn or or Matt could have focused on some other issues as well that are important to me, maybe so. But but um, well, there are other people doing that, and and that doesn't take away from um, the importance of, of of what they do cover. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I think it is absolutely the case that this industry that is here to claim it's combating misinformation uh, that that has radically delimited um, freedom of speech on these this new information infrastructure of, of, of digital social media, it, it is a huge and dangerous problem. And if the conventional radical left were left to its own devices, they wouldn't have said shit about it. Uh, they would have just gone on saying, "We, yeah, well, you know, Trump's bad, so he, or, or maybe Russiagate's not real, but white supremacy is real and the outright is real and Trump supporters are bad, so they should be gone. Or they would say, you know, we want zero COVID, so you know whatever means necessary. So, uh, frankly, I, I whenever people say, "Ah, oh, you've had this controversial person, Matt Taibbi," on, I, 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 I yeah. I'm a, a, a little bit of a loss. Why? Okay, I get it, but it, it shouldn't mm -hmm, be controversial. Mm -hmm. it, it, there's nothing controversial about it at all, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, no, I, I think that's totally fair. Um, what What do you think were some of the main takeaways of your conversation with him? Um, in terms of you know how how you relate that episode to your to your audience now, um, well, I, I don't know. It's one of those nice interviews. You must have had those um, yourself, where you you feel like um, you you got a guest who's a lot more high profile than you are, and the both both their kind of current work confirms like what you've been thinking or arguing, but then you also manage to steer them onto something that you care about that they don't usually talk about that much. So I, I feel like, I, I think the virtue of the interview is that it, it, it shows, I mean, I said to Matt at the start that like when I was first really conscious of his work, he was working for Rolling Stone and covering the Trump campaign. And there he was still very much um, where quite a lot of 
leftist and leftish commentators were, which was treating populism as something that needed explaining. What is this this strange kind of bizarre emanation of this wild politics that shouldn't work and yet it is working? Trump, this guy should be a joke. Hillary Clinton, you know, she she wanted Trump to be her uh, her um, the other candidate in in twenty sixteen because he was so much of a joke. Why is this guy winning? And then something switches, and you realize that it's it's not just populism that needs explaining as this strange phenomenon. Anti populism needs explaining as well, and it's just as convoluted, just as ideologically com- complex, and just as um, politically. Um, multifaceted a phenomenon as populism is. And I suppose that's another kind of thread of what I've been trying to do since 2020 and and, and with the popular show is get people to recognise that whatever they think about populism, anti-populism is an ideological tendency and a political project that is um, that needs explaining and, in my view, needs opposing. So Matt took us through... Russia gates. It's just one of those things where I, I don't know. So much of power today is based on saying ridiculous things, continuing to say them, uh, demonizing and discrediting people who say, "Why are you saying these ridiculous things?" Um, and then, when the narrative has run out of its usefulness, act like you're the crazy one for still wanting to talk about it. So much of yeah, what went on yeah. during COVID is is universally <laughs> accepted as, as as a grave error, but it's becomes it's gone from being low status to be anti-lockdown or or question vaccine mandates to it being low status to want to talk about covid at all people don't want to go back there so uh, russia gate's very similar like you're the mad one for wanting to still talk about russia gate when you know we were told every day this insane conspiracy theory from from the center so we in the interview with Matt, we go from russia gate to um to the way as i as i mentioned that, that kind of infrastructure and that that kind of positioning got used um and inflated during covid um and uh yeah that's part of matt's recent work with the twitter files demonstrating you know with elon's sanction uh the extent to which social media companies were basically strong-armed and blackmailed by uh, the American the state uh, by the state. Uh, We've been covering that uh, for and a semi-state long time. semi-state or state-affiliated bodies. Yeah, it, yeah. Exactly. What, what yeah, Jacob we... Siegel calls the censorship industrial complex, our censorship exactly. and disinformation complex. Yeah, no, and it's, it's uh, um, just mm-hmm. sorry. I appreciate it. I'm giving you a long answer, but just to, to round it off um, and bring it home a bit, Matt's current work does reveal how this is absolutely pertinent to the conventional radical left of, of that's probably the the core of your and my audience in showing that um, here in the UK, Keir Starmer, the current leader of the Labour Party, the likely next British Prime Minister, um, how his campaign vehicle, this thing called Labour Together, was both instrumental in destabilising and undermining the Corbyn project and was instrumental in pursuing um, anti-misinformation, anti-online hate, strategies and campaigns here in the UK. So it, 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 this absolutely proves you know, what I've been saying all along, which is that whether it seems to be used against the right or seems to be used against the left, it's all the same machinery. And 
anytime the right gives sanction to it or supports it because it's being used against the left, oh, good, yeah, get those woke Corbynistas. We want them out. Anytime the left gives sanction to it because it's being used against, oh, bigots and, and COVID deniers on the right, uh, you are sowing the seeds for them coming after you in the next um, in the next news cycle. Yeah, I think that's really well said. Um, well, you just brought up the UK there, so maybe that's a good segue for us. I uh, will post a link for this uh, in the show notes for, for listeners, but uh, you had a really interesting uh, article in Jacobin called The Labour Left's Fatal Contradictions Are Still Unresolved. There was a real standout line in that piece for me, which uh, I wonder if we could use it maybe as a springboard for you to maybe give us a little summation of your argument, which I think you already just hinted at, but I'd like to go into it deeper. Um, but it was a very sort of standout line. Uh, towards the end of the introduction, you say, today, the labor left in defeat seems worryingly uncurious about the regressive influence earlier defeated lefts have sometimes inadvertently had could we just say a little bit more about these earlier defeated lefts and their regressive influence? Who are these earlier defeated lefts and what exactly is their standing today within the, the labor left in the UK? Um, specifically, let's try to connect it to this, this project here about the, the, this, this, in, this interrogation of the management of populism in this late capitalist moment. So that that was back in 2021, um, where I, I, I was really at a sort of low ebb as far as um, my faith in the UK left was concerned. You, you've got a picture that we'd been defeated in the 2019 election, um, and then the second defeat, as it were, came early in 2020 when it became clear that Corbyn's preferred successor, Rebecca Long-Bailey, was not going to come anywhere near uh, being the, the new leader of the Labour Party, but rather this figure who had the backing of the right, Keir Starmer, was going to uh, come in instead. If I'm honest, after the 2019 election, I was still almost uncannily optimistic and positive that the, the, the Corbyn project was going to have a kind of online, ongoing serious effect, that we uh, I had been sort of proven right that you couldn't go against Brexit and still expect to win, but, you know, that Brexit was decided now so we could move forward. Um, after the Labour left's defeat to Keir Starmer, that's when the problems really started to come in, and it became clear that the... The, the Labour left had really, or, or, or rather the, the broad kind of Corbyn left in Britain, had not really learned anything at all from what it had got wrong during the Corbyn years. In the Corbyn years, it had put, set itself against populism. Uh, it, it, instead of setting itself against primarily the neoliberal settlement, uh, it had allowed itself to be drafted in by the kind of liberal face of capitalism as a sort of attack dog for um, Brexit, populism, etc. Even as the liberal face of the neoliberal centre was working to destroy it, so it, it had got sucked in in that way. What what I was increasingly kind of distressed about was seeing that um, the. The, the 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 defeated Corbyn left, and really, I think the same went for the defeated Bernie left 
at the same time in, in pretty quick succession was on successive issues, COVID, BLM um, were, were the immediate ones at that point. Um, the, um, the, 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 the left was sort of had not reformed its thinking. Okay, we could all say, oh, in retrospect, we shouldn't have opposed Brexit, but we were meeting these new issues in exactly the same sort of structure of thought. I refer to it as socialism from above in um, that piece. So on COVID, there was no sense that uh, actually um, the, these um, sort of elite bodies and their claims to expertise should be criticised. There was no sense in which we should remember not to centre uh, petty bourgeois laptop workers in our thinking and instead thinking of, think about the people who are going to be still working through COVID, lockdown or no lockdown. There was no kind of sense that um, there needed to be a kind of position of critique that the left would would take up. Rather, it related to the WHO in exactly the same way it related to the European Union, basically um, uh, 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 kind of conceding to it on, on, all, on all salient grounds. Black Lives Matter, um, while of, of course we all um, accept the, the kind of core of, of their analysis, what happened there was a, an absolute retreat into a kind of folk politics of um, emotional performance um, and a sort of juvenile anarchism that wanted to tear everything down and had completely abandoned the aspirations to seizing control of the state and 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 uh, using it to our own ends that had characterised the Corbyn and Bernie experiments. Instead, we'd reverted to um, this kind of uh, 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 project which. Ultimately, the writing was on the wall at the time that it was only going to lead to like more diversity appointments in elite professions. It wasn't going to result in anything else at all. Maybe some um, law enforcement agencies would hire some more, you know, holistic therapists and so on. Um, but these were all going to be um, from above benefits. And you know, getting behind it in in the total way that we, uh, our side, did, um, becoming this kind of force of um, the this sort of emotional blackmail against anyone who questioned it at all. All of this was a complete disaster. What people weren't realizing was that um, was that the left exists. The left is not just a kind of position for analyzing the world and and deciding what. A, a good political decision is we also kind of exist as um even in defeat as a, a an actor or a unit that is having an effect on the world around it and actually this is especially true in times of defeat uh, actually I, I think that really the kind of the personalities around corbyn were paid a lot more respect after Corbyn was defeated, and they were there just barking for harsher lockdowns and for vaccine mandates, um, they were right. kind of allowed a lot more respectability and seriousness. Right. So, um, you, you asked what the kind of precedent for that was. Here I would go to Nancy Fraser, uh, to her outstanding analysis in um, the, the NLR uh, essay that was published as a book called Fortunes of Feminism, 
where she argues that the new left of the 60s and second wave feminism specifically actually inadvertently ended up helping neoliberalism. I'll try to make this historical narrative short. You think that the new left and second wave feminism were this great kind of transgressive time of, of, of a, a mass left that was very oppositional, that, that questioned every part of the workings of capitalist society. And yes, all of that is true. But the issue is that, especially in, in the moment of its defeat after 1968, what happened was um, frames of feeling, forms of rhetoric, forms of assembly, and forms of critique of the the current organization of capitalism and society became borrowed by the incoming new spirit of capitalism in neoliberalism. When the second wave feminists and the new left had said, ah, oh, the problem with capitalism today is that it is androcentric. It centers the male breadwinner. Neoliberalism, neoliberalism could say, yeah, right on. Let's disempower the male breadwinner. Let's disempower the conventional working class. Let's disempower the conventional working class family. When um, the, the the new left said that uh, post-war capitalism is so statist, it, it, it stops us from having international solidarity, the neoliberals said, right on, let's, uh, let's have globalization. Let's disempower local governments. Let's um, disempower local democracy and national democracy, and instead hand all decision-making power to these supranational bodies. And, and the list goes on. Everything that the new left asked for was delivered to it, um, but in this perverted, inverted form of neoliberalism. Um, and so what, what I was trying to say was, look, we're in a moment of defeat that is very much comparable to 1968. Um, okay, it, it, it was fashionable to say that Corbyn and Bernie were quite sort of weak source compared to what happened in 1968. But another argument would say that no left body in 1968 got anywhere near as close as Corbyn and Bernie did, or, or Syriza or, or Demos, to actually seizing state power. I'm a 2017 man. I believe there was a path to power in that long um, 2016 moment that was squandered, incidentally. So I do believe that there was real radical potential in it. So um, we've got a defeat that is very much comparable to 1968. What are we going to do next? The warning from history was, historically, lefts often end up accidentally supporting an even more exploitative model of capitalism when it comes around. What I was concerned about was that the post-Corbyn, post-Bernie left was doing exactly that in its support for COVID measures, in its support for you know, campaigns against online hate, in its support for the managerial class in Black Lives Matter, that we were basically um, in our defeat still having a big effect on how those processes of renewed authoritarianism and exploitation were going to take place. So in effect, but not not the not a salutary one. No. No, it, it, exactly. Um, you, you you have to be aware that, um, well, as the very woke like to say, intentions don't matter. Um, you have to see the left <laughs> as an actually existing force that can have effects outside its intentions. And we have to be mindful yeah, yeah. and get in front of it. I, I 
I think that's well put. Um, so that actually leads me to another theme that I've seen in your writing uh, here, thinking about your piece from Sublation in March 23, uh, Capitalist Realism All Over Again. Uh, we just had, uh, as a guest on this show, Ephraim Karlbach uh, talking about the 10-year anniversary of Mark Fisher's essay, Exiting the Vampire Castle. Um, you, in that uh, Sublation article, contend that today we really still struggle to understand and apply uh, Mark Fisher's uh, work, especially his book, uh, Capitalist Realism. And I think one of the sort of metrics you use to assess that argument is the left's current tendency towards what you call anti-political moralism. Uh, there's a nice little quote uh, here. You say, uh, today, once again, unlimited and open-ended powers are claimed by states in the name of crises that are too important to be hazarded to democratic oversight or protest. And I think that right there is going to be kind of like um, a compass point for us, probably for the rest of this conversation today, because I think there's going to be two or three cases we're going to get into for the rest of this conversation that really kind of highlight areas uh, where, uh, where states are asserting those sorts of powers. And as you were hinting already, you know, suspicion of this tends to sort of be labeled today as almost like right wing conspiracy theory uh, stuff. But um, maybe just like to to, to set a, a theoretical tone for this conversation, then um, where does capitalist realism stand for you um, as a as a left commentary that that can be applied today? What what should we be taking from this book in our as you were sort of hinting at it, like a second or a third reading, even um, you know, from today's perspective, it resonates a little bit differently than it did uh, back then. It's it's a thesis that is still relevant, but maybe in an updated way. Well, I mean, the book diagnosed um, this kind of stasis, this this end of history state where it feels like there can be no new events; nothing could ever fundamentally change. Uh, and so, it's a it's a slight irony that. Uh, yeah, uh, I find myself having to kind of renew my view of the book because things seem to be changing so quickly ever since. I, I mean, I began my book, Other People's Politics, which, which I, I wanted to publish with Zero Books, mainly because that was the publisher of Capitalist Realism. Um, I, I began that book by claiming that the, this sort of moment of Trump, Brexit, Corbyn, Bernie, um, does feel like a break with capitalist realism and wherever one stood on any of those figures or moments the point is that there seemed to have been a kind of new flooding in of democratic potential and um this kind of realization that actually you know people aren't just stuck in this apolitical um third way morass actually they can change their minds very quickly and they can act in what they perceive to be their own interest through democratic channels in ways that um the the the, the mainstream agencies did not anticipate and that was that that should have been very enabling um now uh earlier this year um i found myself returning to the book 
a, in a sort of state of misery because, as I say, while the book has never had such a high standing as it has today, you know, everyone, mm-hmm, all, mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. it's tote bag fodder, right? Um, it is uh, hinge profile pick um, <laughs> material, right? Uh, it, it it's um it, it's it, we we're we're further than we ever have been from appreciating its lesson. Um, that is a book about the aftermath of the war on terror and the extent to which um, the, the um, normal processes of political participation and deliberation were suspended um, during the war on terror. It, it's a book about the role that foreign policy actually surreptitiously has in domestic policy and domestic ideology. It's clear from reading that book that the reason why people, uh, uh, when he was was writing it in the the run-up to the financial crash in 2008, and then it was published in 2009, um, the reason why people found it so difficult to imagine a world outside capitalism was, to a great extent, because a kind of in fencing of possibility is policed and enforced by the management of of, of foreign policy, um, and it is a, a, a book that is very clear sighted about precisely what I was describing before: the fact that the left's own energies and forms of rhetoric and forms of behaviour can be used very easily by other ideologies and indeed by the powerful that that uh, uh, that book is full of examples of ways that kind of left protests and left forms of resistance can end up getting recuperated by the powers that be it's also a book that is unembarrassed about saying as fisher said elsewhere that most of what gets called conspiracy theory is actually the ruling class showing class solidarity uh fisher points the finger at um, people like Bill Gates and George Soros, who, if we go back to Zizek's writings at the time, were being referred to as the liberal communists, the liberal capitalist communists. Um, Fisher names these names and says that these billionaires have an outsized influence on our politics, and a lot of our public sphere is getting reinvented in their idiosyncratic, eccentric, personal vision. Now, we flash forward to when I wrote the piece earlier this year, and really it it was my attempt to kind of add a Ukraine chapter to the analysis I'd already made a couple of years before in that Jacobin piece. There I was criticizing the left's reaction to COVID. Now uh, we had to add Ukraine to the um to the picture. Right. And if the, the the left had really been the kind of attack dog for the COVID machine. It had made it seem kind of unhip and dubious and kind of nuts if you opposed vaccine mandates. Um, It had kind of offered a young face to the the sort of Corbyn millennial left had offered a, a young face to the enclosure of the closing of schools, the enclosure of all social life, this bizarre you know the effects are to be seen this this destroying of the um 
the, the mental health and education of, of, of a whole generation. Um, if, if, if the left had been a big part of the propaganda effort for COVID measures, um, it, its role during Ukraine was to really disable from the inside the anti-war um, movement, such as it was, and also the anti-war muscle memory that is there with much of the ordinary public in the West and in the English-speaking world. It left it to the dissident, weird Trump right to make the case against indiscriminate flooding of Eastern Europe with weapons. It left it to the dissident rights and a few of um, what uh, my friend Peter Hitchens refers to as the pariah left figures like <laughs> George Galloway um, uh, and and others like him to 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 say, well, you know, um, Ukrainian history didn't begin in 2022, uh, and what happened in 2014? What was promised at the end of the Soviet Union? What has NATO been building up on the border of Russia? What what's what has it been about the behaviour of the West that has made this invasion all but inevitable? Basically, it was left to the right and to a few kind of excluded figures on the left to make that argument. The the core of the of, of the left um, really um, spent all of its time scolding and discrediting. Um, I mean, a Andrew Fisher, who had been one of Corbyn's advisors, he, you know, even just months ago, he has an op-ed out saying that. Uh, the Stop the War Coalition, which was the kind of organizing force of the anti-Iraq war protests, should disband over how much it had disgraced itself by criticizing Western support for Ukraine. So um, basically what, what I was looking at was a situation where the, the, the left loves this book, Capitalist Realism, but it is absolutely incapable of applying its very clear analysis and very clear lessons to either COVID or Ukraine. And of course, um, Fisher himself had died in 2017, so we didn't know what he would have had to say about either of those things. But what is right, book, we can't anticipate is exactly. Book, yeah, um, is is very clear to me. Yeah, I think a lot. You know, you're right. A lot, a lot of what gets focused on about that book is the kind of hedonic depression aspect. Uh, you know, his his experience with his students in the classroom, and I think there's a passage. Well, I mean, you take that. Uh, yeah. Is that going to be yeah, any better? Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe you were about to cite it. Sorry, but no, no, we, go ahead. Yep, Vishal talks about um, you know the, these alienated uh, kids in the further education colleges that he he um, taught in, where they 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 exist in a state of um, uh, a depressive hedonia, where they are constantly needing to be stimulated. Then he's talking about iPods. Um, uh, uh, you know, this is before proper social media platforms, for God's sake. Um, uh, they're constantly needing to be stimulated, and yet there's no euphoria in that stimulation. They're in a constant state of depression. Well, th that state of being, I think it's safe to say, has been rolled out across the classes and across the age groups uh, in these um, in the um, sort of decade and a half of um, digital social media that we've had. But, you know, if, if that's the state that Fisher's students were in in 2009, what state do we think um, the kids who were having to learn from home or having to wear masks in schools were in in the in the in the 2020 2021 
period. Like even that more um, uh, psychological and, and individualist part of Fisher's analysis where he's very beautifully talking about um, mental health, even that, which, as you say, is is maybe the more popular part of his work today, even that we were completely um, immune to seeing um, that we were worsening those trends and patterns and worsening them for the younger cousins, as it were, of Fisher students um, uh, uh, during, during the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's very interesting. Uh, to th it's a very interesting question how Fisher remains relevant today in some ways and, and perhaps needs updating in, in other ways. Speaking of, uh, you know, the foreign policy aspect, though, and and, and I, I, it's interesting to, you know, in your first answer there, when we, we were talking about the book, um, Capitalist Realism, you know, you explicitly sort of refer to the context of writing in the kind of the early wake of the war on terror and um, how some of these uh, state-based message management systems can already be seen uh, operating there. Um, of course, it's 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 by no means a new phenomena, but um, certainly it seems in the context of foreign policy today to have ticked up a notch. Uh, I think possibly because it's recruited now so many um, liberals of good conscience. In fairness, let's be real. Yeah. Um, and this, of course, is a central theme of your discussion with um, Tara McCormick in one of your recent episodes. Incidentally, Tara was my first ever podcast guest uh, a few years oh, ago wow. when I started my own podcast, uh, Fully Automated. Um, back then, we were talking about the new McCarthyism. And it's just very interesting to hear her talk with you about these newer developments in foreign policy, uh, specifically Ukraine. Um, I wondered if you had thoughts you'd like to share on your thesis about the anti-populist turn um, and how the, the Ukraine war and the management of the messaging around the Ukraine war fits uh, with, with with that thesis, um, this is something you got into with Tara a little bit. So so maybe guests would like to hear a little bit about that. Well, we're living through a, a period of deliberate and organised disempowerment of the people. Mm -hmm. We are living through. Um, the years of punishment for for three things in, in the English American world, and those three things mm. are the 2016 Brexit vote, which was the first time that Britain had been forced to pursue a foreign policy outside the desires of its ruling class, of the core of its ruling class. And indeed, the American ruling class, um, Obama was not happy. Um, 
there's the first thing. The second thing is the Trump election, which was just as unexpected uh, by both parties. Uh, and the third is the 2017 election in the UK, where Corbyn got yeah, a terrifying 40% yeah. of the vote. He would have easily won any previous election in the 21st century right. vote share. So the this was proof that um, the British and American public were not as propagandized as was thought, and they were also not as predictable as was thought. And all of that polling industry uh, what, and all of the ideological analysis of our elites and, and of the academics and of the information class and the journalists, um, and indeed the, the party elites as well, all of it was, was very much mistaken. And right. these groups that the, the, the make up our, our political class, they immediately started to look for ways that they could make sure that that didn't happen again. The left was very easy to divide against itself. You just start calling people racist or sexist and, and they'll all start um, the self-denouncements. Uh, this is one of the great pleasures of people on the left, realising the way in which their analysis of others actually applies to themselves. Most of us treat political activism like it's um, lying on a therapist's couch. So that was easy to, to disempower. The right, um, which is much more a creature of the id, it, 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 it does not mm -hmm. um, question anything and doesn't believe anything that is contrary to its own view. What do you mean I lost the election? <laughs> Go to hell, I won the election. Um, uh, and so faced with that uh, January, 6th, January 6th mindset, um, they've had to um pursue these various ways of, of 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 making it so that trump can't run thus guaranteeing another january 6th and a totally justified one um uh, uh, down the line so uh that's the right as for um the, the right in the uk um they had to they only accepted boris because they needed they needed a a, a kind of figure like him in order to defeat corbyn uh, the, the Tory party elite did not want Boris Johnson at all, um, but grudgingly accepted him um, as the only guy that they could bring in to, to defeat Corbyn. And once his usefulness had been used up, um, they got him on these completely spurious, in my view, bullshit accusations about having a party during COVID, which in a different news cycle he'd have been praised for. Prime Minister. Right, Kingsman. yeah. Well-deserved rest. It it would be so easy to write the opposite propaganda narrative, and get rid of um, Boris Johnson. So um, mm, mm, the, the, mm, the, 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 that's going on at the higher level. That's going on at the level of of elite politics, excluding and disabling and removing um, the kinds of political actors who don't play the game correctly. At the wider level, the people are being punished for voting the wrong way um, through all those years as well. And they're being punished by um, having um, measures imposed upon them that limit their access to the spontaneous rhythms of daily life, of ordinary conversation about politics and so on outside the striated context of their phones and their computers. We don't want you right. uh, uh, talking about this in the pub anymore or on the street. We want you spending as much time as possible 
on your devices where we can keep an eye on what you're talking about. And if necessary, we can delete your posts and remove your videos uh, if the algorithm has detected that you used the wrong phrases about vaccines and so on. So um, the, the, the you know, never mind. This is... The- Please, yeah. I was going to say this is. I'm, I'm in Ireland right now as we speak. Uh, you know, home visit Great family example. and some of the stuff that that's been uh, just been following up on some of the recent legislation here. I don't know if you followed that. I I, I know I didn't uh, announce that question to you well, in advance, but if you have I, thoughts Ireland, on it, it'd be interesting I, to hear them. I, I, Ireland was was austerity's model pupil. Um, yes. We, yes. Yes. We yes. Are the, I won't do an Irish accent when I'm doing this, but we we're the. We're the good ones. We're the ones who don't uh, break the rules in the EU. Those Southern Europeans um, are kicking off, but but we're going to take we're our. Not like those Greeks. Uh, we're not like those Greeks. Um, you know, part of this. <laughs> I don't know. There's an interesting long history here, is isn't there? Mm-hmm. That uh, uh, the part of the problem is that so much of um, the anti-establishment energy in Ireland naturally is a kind of post-colonial one and is naturally wrapped up in autonomy from Britain, totally correctly. Um, but unfortunately, that leaves it very vulnerable to being channel- ch- channeled into, well, we're anti-British and, and therefore we're pro-EU. Therefore, we yeah. welcome yeah. Yeah. austerity being meted out on our mm-hmm. own people. Well, mm-hmm. we're, we're anti-Britain and Britain is led by COVID denier Boris Johnson and therefore... We 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 embrace our, our COVID measures and we embrace the policing of um, any kind of dissidence on COVID. Ah, well, uh, and then the same kind of structure of thought goes to we welcome this American kind of framing of um, anti misinformation and anti hate speech um, legislation controlling our freedom of thought and freedom of speech because. Um, we're the model pupil and we don't it's un-Irish to have these bigots and these cranks um in in our in our country and in our ideology. So yeah, yeah, there, there is a sort of tragedy of Ireland right now that in mm. order to kind of in order to sort of create this Irish future, it is finding itself getting into bed with all of the most reactionary supranational bodies that there are. Tragically, unfortunately, yeah, yeah, for sure. No, I, I completely agree. Um, so, uh, I've had. Thank you, first of all, for for all your 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 time today. Um, if you have a a little while longer, I, I've last couple of questions for you here. Um, turning our attention to the left's relationship to the uh, conflict in Gaza right now. Um, if you don't mind, I and I, you know, if, if you're able to comment on it, it'd be great. Um, but I, I noticed you were tweeting with Doug Lane, the editor of Sublation, uh, the other day about Gaza. Doug has been a longtime um, teacher of mine. Uh, he's educated me on a lot of things. Uh, he's aware, I think, that he and I have some fairly striding, strident disagreements on on Gaza right now, uh, but. But for what it's worth, I mean, I think Doug's, you know, in good faith, has been trying to stake out a, a unique position um, on on the left and how it should relate to this conflict, suggesting 
you know, there's obvious corruption within Hamas, uh, you know, among the things I've seen him say is that it's, you know, it's a Bonapartist organization seeking to create an Islamist state. Um, and that therefore it's it's a mistake for the left to be um, embracing it. Uh, he sees the left's stance on Gaza as kind of performative, uh, maybe repeating many of the mistakes um, of the 2003 anti-war cycle, specifically the not in our name movement. And um, so essentially, I think he's concerned that the left today is tailing Hamas. Um, anyone who follows his work will know that he's long time arguing that, that that the real focus should be on the left becoming a vanguard on the home front, working to working towards the creation of a, of a working class party. Um, I just wonder, do you do you have a response to that, or um, where yeah, do you think well, like you, we I've are? A, you know, what, yeah. yeah, like you, I've got a professional, you know, background with with Doug, um, and, mm -hmm. and like him very much. Um, I think that I mean, I will answer some of those um, some of those positions or arguments that you're ventriloquizing, but th this isn't interesting because one guy thinks it. it it's interesting because of course thank it, you for saying it, that yes that's, it, it that's, is, that's um, exactly right yeah it, it, it is clearly the case that a section of um the broad left intelligentsia is currently taking a highly skeptical position on pro-gaza advocacy and protest and let me say first of all that is not my position my position, uh, and this is witnessed in the number of episodes we've done on it. My position is one of 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 savage mortal anger at what is happening in Gaza with your and my taxes, weapons built in your and my uh, um, uh, 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 places of of residence, uh, and with the diplomatic cover of our countries. Um, and so I, I feel a tremendous amount of responsibility for it. Uh, and I also think that Gaza is a laboratory, an extreme kind of instance of what um, our elites would do to all of us if they if they could. This is uh, this is a scene of people who are not needed or wanted being um be, being um targeted with the most innovative forms of law weaponry technology propaganda all of it and, and i think that if we if if we don't have an intervention on this then we're kidding ourselves really but let let me say what i mean by by being more structural than than like some people thinking one thing and other people thinking another. Um, I've given a, a, a pretty um, uh, uh, cynical analysis of what the broad radical left has got up to since the Corbyn and Bernie adventures, that they have been um, drastically wrong, I've suggested, on COVID, to some extent on, on Black Lives Matter, and to some extent on, on Ukraine. What that's allowed to form was a sort of sub-intelligentsia within the left, and it wasn't intelligentsia. Neither Doug nor me 
nor Bunga Cast, uh, nor the uh-huh. right. the 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 token left cranks. I use the term approvingly, who are allowed to write for Unheard or, or, or Compact yes. Magazine. None of these uh-huh. represented a significant movement or, or, or political faction out there. All of these are kind of intellectual positions. And all of us have found ourselves in the slightly undesirable position of rather helplessly scolding or interrogating what the broad left has been running along and doing kind of out there, very often completely ignoring us whilst they've been doing it. Um, So this kind of um, uh, um, rump of um, left intelligentsia, call it post-left, call it materialist left, call it paleo-left, call it dissident left, call it anything you want, um, it has, in my view, generally made the right calls on covid and ukraine it it's um it has also made the right calls on what the bernie and corbyn left got wrong in how they approached supporters of trump and brexit i feel that that um rump has hit a wall with gaza it has obviously split um people like glenn greenwald people like thomas farsi people like me um, and um, Matt Taibbi, when when prompted, he, he doesn't sort of make a big. I think you're right on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. We have in common that we see the propagandizing of um, COVID and Ukraine, the anti-populism of the Never Trump movement, of of the RussiaGate movement, and of the People's Vote um, uh, anti-Brexit movement. We see all of those forces and energies now being deployed on the side of Israel. Um, Just to take an example, um, think of how um, part of the propaganda for intervention and and, um, uh, escalation in Ukraine was to get normal people to put Ukrainian flags in their bios, to light up public buildings with Ukrainian flags. Manchester, near where I live, um, the Rodan sculpture that welcomes you when you come into Manchester Art Gallery had a Ukrainian flag as a cape around its neck. Notably, when the when the museum reopened after October seventh this year, the cape had gone. Um, probably some uh, uh, someone had breathed a sigh of relief that they could, <laughs> in good faith, get rid of this cape now that it was getting kind of embarrassing. Anyway, um, this was um, this was a, a sort of attempt to bring foreign policy into people's everyday lives in the way that COVID had brought domestic policy into their everyday lives. We'd all been brought to um, make these kind of displays of pseudo-solidarity over COVID. We'd all been drafted into this land war of policing each other, making sure that no one was allowed to say anything anti-vax, no one was allowed to say anything anti-lockdown. We, normal people, had been brought into politics during COVID on the side of the state. Ukraine war, they tried to do very much the same thing. Do your average people on the school run know fuck all about Ukraine? No, they don't. But they're very willing to say that Putin was bad and that they stand by the poor people of Ukraine. Flash forward to October. They tried to do the same thing with Israel. Light up 
public buildings, number 10 Downing Street with Israeli flags. It looked like an anti-Semitic cartoon out there. Uh, Star of David on <laughs> number 10 Downing Street. It looked like something out of Roger Waters' stage set. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's all yeah. to say, I stand with Israel. Tried to make Israel into uh-huh. another Ukraine. They didn't realize that Israel is, let's make no bones about it, fucking evil. And they also didn't yeah. realize that there was going to be this extraordinary amount of <laughs> gore and body parts caught on camera in Gaza for months afterwards. All of that was going to come out and flood norm, normy Instagram, normy social media accounts. Did you notice this? I felt like my you know, intellectual political friends on Twitter were a lot more reticent about posting these horrible images of dead of dead Palestinians than were like more apolitical people I know. Um, they would they were straight away just just going for it. Whereas it's almost like the more kind of political people were sort of caught off guard a little bit. I think that like what happened was actually it was a big mistake to get normal people to support Ukraine and then think you could get them to support Israel on the same terms because actually they took all that energy into supporting Gaza. That's why we have an unprecedented difference of opinion on um, Israel, you know, between your average person and elites right now. So um, where does that leave that fraction of the left that that you were just referring to? It leaves them in this situation where you're kind of whatever, mainstream, radical, left, your core in people, many people, your woke people, they all know exactly what to do on Israel. Palestine, you know, automatically revert to full-throated defense of Palestine. They are now with, never mind that they're, they're making the right assessment of the foreign policy situation, in my opinion, they are suddenly with the normies and your, your bunker castes, your um, dogs, your um you know paleo post lefts are suddenly not um are are suddenly kind of left in the cold um Mm -hmm. what does that um sort of cynical fraction of the left intelligentsia think about gaza well they take a sensible um view that you know uh, hamas are very wicked etc they take um the view that um these mass demonstrations on the part of the left are kind of cringe and uninformed. They're just emoting. Yeah. This is just, you know, fashion politics, etc. Um, they they also, some of these people countenance the idea that this is left anti-Semitism as well, that an undue uh. hatred of Israel and support for Palestinians is um in some way um uh, anti-Semitic. So in other words, um, your, your, your people who were extremely sceptical about propaganda on um, COVID in Ukraine and were extremely alive to the way in which authoritarianism, censorship um, and anti-populism were being seeded and spread through those crises are now, um, are now, as far as I can see, really badly getting it wrong. As I stress, not Glenn, not Matt, not uh, really, uh, Thomas yeah. Farsi. Uh, they, they, as it were, I don't know, the danger is that if you criticise the left for long enough, you end up reflexively assuming that the left can do nothing right. 
and you end up reflexively assuming that whatever it is the left mainstream left is doing has to be the wrong, wrong. thing. Yeah. I, and I'm, yeah. I'm not saying this about anyone in particular. I'm saying that this is part of the kind of current of thought. And so when you I see Owen Jones and Navarra Media kind of going hard on Gaza, you think, can those guys really be right yeah. about this? Surely not. Well, they, they are right about this. And uh, the stop clocks are sometimes right twice a day. Uh, as, well, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I I hope that we can see this slightly differently. I mean, equally, you know, I, I see people sort of scoffing and saying, oh, so many of these people who, you know, got in, on board with some people on the right in recent years are now shocked that they have bad takes on on Israel. Well, OK, but I'm not going to forget your bad takes on COVID and, and, and Ukraine and the EU, et cetera, et cetera. No, of course. Uh, yeah. We, we yeah. have to come out of this crisis able to say to our comrades on the, the mass activist left, okay, have you learned some lessons from this? Have, have, have you recognized that, um, that, that uh, so much of the propaganda for Israel that you objected to was identical to the propaganda that was used for Ukraine and for COVID measures? Can you recognize that so much of that kind of council culture, vampire's castle rhetoric is now yes. being used to cancel pro-Palestinians? Can we now come out of this no longer supporting that kind of thing when it's used against people we don't like deplorables yeah. you know racist waiters and and, and so on um <laughs> you know that is a conversation that we need to have it's not a conversation yeah. that i'm inclined to have right now whilst um we're still seeing you know tanks uh leveling churches and still seeing kids with no arms and no legs getting killed in hospitals that they were taken to because they got their limbs blown off in a previous bombing i don't think it's the time for that kind of internal left dialogue now and i don't really have that much respect for people who whilst watching what's going on in gaza are seeing this mainly as an opportunity to criticize um the the, the woke left or something like that in fact i i am pretty disgusted by it is personally so um that that's the story i tell one of the kind of core left really kind of failing and a sort of dissident intellectual left forming during that time and now we reach a a, a a hurdle where for quite particular internal dynamic reasons that mass left is in the right and that minority intellectual left is is to a great extent in the wrong and i think that is the that is the state of play that we need to have going forward in whatever it is we're going to build or attempt in the coming years. Uh, James, I want to thank you for, for that. Um, that's a very interesting uh, examination of a very complicated uh, sort of discursive uh, vista that, that, that we're in right now. Um, you know, the, 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 the typical closing questions for an interview like this are kind of like, where do you see hope for the future or what is to be done? Um, I'm sure there's probably a less cliche way of putting it, but I, I just I, I, I don't have it in me just at the minute. Uh, I think possibly because I find myself so so very challenged by the 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 difficulties that you're 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 describing here. Um, I know very well. Uh, sort of on an intellectual level, that your point about um, the left being always wrong uh, and the seductive nature of that kind of 
thinking uh, is an impasse and a, and a mistake. Uh, you know, the left is not always wrong. Um, nevertheless, um, I, I concede that I have found myself somewhat in despair um, over the last um, couple of months, in particular, uh, seeing some fellow travelers, people that I've kind of been looking up to, you know, taking just like extraordinarily wrong positions as far as I can make out. I, I still, uh, you know, have great respect for these people. I, I They've taught me a lot. Um, I just trying to sort of parse out where we go from here. Um, do you see opportunities ahead? Uh, where should we be focusing our attention? I know we have to get through Gaza first, and that that could be some time. Um, but next year, uh, you know, what 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 lies ahead? What 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 can we look forward to? Do you think? Well, I mean, I I think that the the lesson of the of the of the new left and the lesson of of past lefts is that you have to, as a left, know when to act when to take what mm. uh, Walter Benjamin referred to as the the tiger's leap uh, of, of, of the opportunity, the moment where absolutely everything can be transformed and changed in the, the glinting of an eye. Um, mm -hmm. And we've had a few of those recently. And you also have to know when the correct thing to do is to shut the hell up, to focus on small tactical local projects and battles to focus on the building of um the infrastructure of a of a left public sphere which is you know what all these 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 platforms and 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 journals and and so on and and uh, uh political education groups are all about um mm -hmm. because you know frankly if uh, if you told me, okay, we've got this newly minted left party and it's ready to go and it's going to start winning in 2020, then I would have said I don't want any part of it and I don't want it to win if it's going to be the zero COVID party. If uh, if you told me you had the same thing in 2022, I'd say, well, I don't want the Azov Battalion Party either. Um, mm. So it, actually, we, we, we have a lot of internal sorting out to do on the mm -hmm. left we we do have mm -hmm. huge opportunities you you've you the generation left phenomenon the fact that the under 50s think of themselves as left wing uh in, mm. in the west that is not fake that is real the problem is that there is a huge kind of contest and 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 battle over what those signifiers of left wingness are actually going to mean is it greta thunberg is it um yeah work council culture, or is it something closer to a, a left populism that radically challenges foreign policy as much as it challenges domestic right. policy, the kind of thing that I've been arguing for? Yeah. And I think the fact that, um, the, the, uh, that, that Gaza has represented this kind of flipping of the script, I take that not as right. a source of you know depression or even the guys I get on with don't agree with me. No, it, it shows that, <laughs> that, that we continue to be in, in ideologically mobile times, which require ideological nimbleness, however much the official policy of the power elite is to shut down any ideological nimbleness and any expressions of new forms of solidarity, mm. et cetera, et cetera, we're still primed for it and we're still able 
to do it. So I, I, I say that actually it, we could right now it's not about kind of you know getting mm. behind a Bernie figure or something like that or or creating a a a a, 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 um, a, a doctrinaire Marxist uh, working class party. It's about correcting the habits of thoughts on the left that come from its decades of defeat, that come from the dominance of a kind of professional managerial class um, system regime of taste and aesthetics, um, of, 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 of driving those things out whilst fighting local battles with the people of other political persuasions who agree with us uh, in order to prevent the enclosure of democracy and prevent the enclosure of communications that is going to stop mm. an actually mm. good left party from getting anywhere when the time mm. comes. So I think it's a, it, it's about recognising the smallness of what we can achieve uh, right now and embracing that. You know, we, we just had a potentially transformative moment with the Bernie and the Corbyn projects. Clear-sighted analysis of what went wrong, that is still a job that is to be done. You know, people still don't really grasp what they did wrong at the time. People don't grasp what they've done wrong on subsequent um, uh, 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 crises. So it's about that smaller work. And the fact that we have disagreements between us on on the left, both in this small kind of intellectual part and in the wider movement, that's perfectly correct for the time that we're in and for the sort of the cycle that the left itself is mm -hmm. it but I, I don't find that dispiriting mm -hmm. or, or mortifying and people shouldn't be offended mm -hmm. that we disagree with each other right now that that is that is mm -hmm. totally correct for the moment we're in oh that's inspirational i really appreciate you saying that uh, i will take that to heart i shouldn't be despondent i should take it as a sign of of of, of the possibilities of our time and the the as yet existing uh nimbleness uh of, of of our of our of our of our of our milieu so okay that was fantastic uh listeners once again you can uh follow james's work uh at the popular pod uh available on your podcasting apps of choice do check out his books other people's politics populism to corbinism and work want work labor and desire at the end of capitalism uh, um, actually, uh, just if you have a second before you go, James, I know that that book may be interesting to some listeners of my own podcast, uh, Fully Automated. Um, you know, it, you touched there on some of issues related to fully automated luxury communism. I would love to have you back on maybe to do a deep dive into that at some stage uh, moving forward. If you're available, maybe next year we'll have you back on. I'd love to. That'd be terrific. Brilliant. Thanks, James, for joining us. Um, listeners, we'll be back with some more transmissions from Class Unity. Thank you very much.